Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me, as always, is Armin Navabi. Armin, how are you? Good. How are you? Thank you. I am I'm good. I actually recently went to Atheist Republic. Atheist Republic is the largest online platform for atheists in the world. Armin Navabi founded it a long time ago, and now it's got 2.1. You've, you've passed 2, 2 million. When did you do that? Um, 2.1 million followers. I don't. Okay, yeah, uh, it's been it's been fifteen years. Or, yeah. No, no, no. When? Uh, okay. Well, I was asking about when you passed two million because oh, that's yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. So uh, two million. I don't know. It was the beginning of last year. I think we passed two two million. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Anyway, yeah. I wish you could. You got to sound more excited about it. Anyway, <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm. Okay. Armin is the, but, yeah. but I have you. You you hype things up, so I don't need to do it myself. So that's good. I hype things up legitimately. Okay. Yeah, anyway, listen. I'm not gonna waste any time here because you guys don't want to listen to us. You want to listen to our guests. And today we have Alia Salim, who's joining us from the UK. Now she's a co-founder mm. of Faith to Faithless, and she's a co-editor of the book Leaving Faith Behind. The journeys and perspectives of people who have chosen to leave Islam. Um, it, it's actually a really good book. I have to admit, I haven't read all of it yet, but uh, Jimmy Bangash uh, also wrote a chapter in it. Is that right, Alia? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And um, so, and, and Alia is also a researcher at the House of Lords in Parliament. Um, Alia left Islam at age 19. She comes from a Sunni background. She spent about six years in formal Islamic boarding schools in Britain and Pakistan before uh, exploring her doubts and then leaving the faith completely. Now, Alia, welcome to the podcast, first of all. No, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you guys. I'm huge fans of the podcast. So Yeah, yeah it's a big honor for us as well to, to have you on. Um, and uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is that you said that, you know, you went to Islamic boarding schools in Britain and Pakistan, but I'm sitting here in Mississauga, Ontario, right, mm -hmm. in Canada, but you were here too. You were at the, um, is it the Al Huda Institute? Yeah. So I went to Islamic boarding schools for my high school education in Britain. And right. then after I left school, I um, was going to study in Canada. So I went to Canada um, because Dr. Farah Hashmi, who has the Al Huda Institute, which is a very conservative, um, evangelical sort of Islamic. Uh, educational institute that was set up in Canada but the the funny thing is is that Dr. Farah Hashmi she um, lectures in Urdu um, but I don't speak very good Urdu so I struggled with her classes there so I was only there for three months then I went to Pakistan where the English version of her course was starting and I started there so I actually left Canada because it wasn't in English and I went to Pakistan to study in English. To get it in English. Okay, yeah. that's yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But she she is uh so she's pretty hardcore. And one one of the things mm. that 
I mean, we should mention here, and and you wrote about this, or, or you were mentioned. I, there's an article in the Times. Um, I looked it up after you told me before, and uh, Tashfin Malik, who was one of the San Bernardino shooters, hmm. uh, she also went to the same institute. Yeah, uh, I mean, she. I mean, the thing about Dr. Farah Hashmi's schools is whether you're in, um, in whether you're in Canada or Pakistan or whichever school you're in. It's very standardized, so all Dr. Farah Hashmi's um, interpretation of the Quran, because she does a one-year sort of crash course on Quranic Tafsir. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the Tafshin Malik thing happened, I obviously I studied at the same institute as her. So I, I wrote about it for the Times, um, because what I wanted to look at was, you know, how does somebody go from, you know, what because Dr. Farah Hashmi's, she, I see her as quite hardcore. She's very conservative and quite literalist. Yeah, she, she wears a full burqa and the face veil. She wears a full burqa and she, and I actually, when I was at her school, I was quite young. I was about 16 and I chose to, to wear the face veil um, for about a year after I'd gone to the school because they, they pretty much tell you that it's it's compulsory to cover your face. So most women who go to Ahuda cover their face. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, that's why, I mean, with, with myself, I became quite convinced by that um, hardcore version of Islam. Because pri- previously to that, even though I was in Islamic school, um, I was quite rebellious and I used to question a lot. I was very skeptical as a child. But the doctor for Hash- Hashmi education sort of tipped me over into um, what we in those days just called being religious. But we people would probably now look at it as a form of extremism um, because that was when I really took Islam seriously and started believing in it when I was about 16. That was when, you know, anything, you know, in the Quran, whether it's chopping hands or sex slaves or whatever, I would have taken that and believed that. But previously I'd been a bit more, you know, I don't really understand that. I don't really get that. So Farah Hashmi had that effect on me. So what's interesting is that she is, uh, she is also like within Muslim circles and among her supporters, she's thought of as a, a progressive kind of feminist, even though she yeah yeah was... no there there's kind of a reason for that actually. Uh-huh. Um, what Hashmi does is very clever because Pakistani women don't really have much autonomy and control over their lives, but what Dr. Farah Hashmi says to them is that through using um, their own common sense and judgment they're able to select the version or the interpretation of Islam that they agree with. And so she she sort of gives them control. And that is seen as, um, empower, it's actually empowering. I've seen women, I found it so empowering, but where they're starting from is so bad mm. in terms of how much control they have. He, what she seems to be giving them is a sort of choice in how they should practice Islam, that your, your dad or your husband can't tell you how to practice Islam. That's between you and God. And here are the texts, and you can make your own decisions. And that's seen as somehow progressive or feminist. Like yeah, she, she says that they can. They're allowed to recite the Quran or touch it during uh, their periods. The menses, yes. Uh, she says that they can't. Uh, they they should be able to lead their own prayers. Um, yeah, we. Yeah, I used to do that. I used to lead prayers. So, so the, it's kind of interesting because she's putting on this sort of. Uh, there, there's a a facade of empowerment. But it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 an illusion in a way. Because yeah, essentially, going, essentially, when you get down to it, it's conservative. Why is yeah, it an illusion? Because you're taking control of your 
own oppression. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's you, yeah, you're oppressed, but you're in control of it. Yeah. You're oppressed by, uh, go, uh, by God rather than by the men in your society. You're, you're, you're making the decision to do this. You're wearing the, the face veil because you've decided to. And, and the thing is, that I, the reason why I found the school so, for me, empowering was because I had gone from an Islamic boarding school in Britain where they were so controlling to, in Pakistan, it was like, we're not going to tell you to pray. We're not going to tell you to cover your face. But when you study here, when you come across the verse, <laughs> then you make that decision yourself. Right. And for me, for me, as somebody, because I had such a repressive background, I find that I found that empowering. <laughs> <laughs> so they give. So basically, it's like you're in jail, and they give you the keys, and they still convince you to why you should just stay in the stay jail, in jail. Stay in jail. She, you, she, you become your own jailkeeper. But it's 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 more than that. She gives she gives women reins to go out and evangelize you know go out there and teach and you're you're being given these kind of worldly activities not just you know being a mother or being good to your husband is going out there and leading prayer and leading da'wah and having control and being the one to lay the law in the family or where the morality is and that and a lot of women get really sucked into it um and actually the zeal goes as quickly as it comes it tends to a lot of women tend to sort of they can't take it because it's quite overpowering how zealous that environment is. Right. And, well, I mean, speaking of zealous, mm. <laughs> I mean, Th Thashfin Malik, the San Bernardino yeah. leader, was one of the very, very few women, especially in Western attacks. I, I haven't really seen any other ones uh, mm. in Western Islamic terrorist attacks who um, actually went out and she took part in this really aggressive thing. Yeah, and, uh, they both the couple had a kid, and they essentially abandoned the kid for the greater mm. their minds. What was a greater good? So mm. that is actually quite aggressive and uh, assertive. I mm. mean, I, I know people like to call these people cowards and everything, but I disagree with that. I think that when you do that, you dismiss how serious an issue it is. Um, Can you tell so us? It's, what it's was... actually, it is very clever. Can you tell us what did you find? Because a lot of people try to understand how is it that somebody could believe in stuff like this. Um, like you said that uh, at some point you even like if somebody uh, the slavery parts of the Quran, the head choppings, all of that. You said like you saw it as it is and you could agree with it, right? Um, and how is it that could that somebody could be brought to agreeing with th that kind of a teaching. Do you can, can you? Well, well, what happened with me was that I um, was a skeptical child. So when I was so there's for me there's two periods: boarding school in London and boarding school in, in Pakistan. Um, but when I started to believe that the Quran was was definitely the word of God, and I became quite convinced by the. You know the you know the kind of um, typical arguments that people give you, that, such as you know you 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 won't understand like you don't understand the world or the universe, and you'll never understand it as well as God understands it, and He has a reason for why He's done that, and there's always you know a consequence for every action, and because I became so zealous and I became so afraid of being wrong about mm -hmm. my doubts, um, it didn't take much to convince me. So, you know, I went from, you know, questioning the, the punishments in Islam for homosexuality to thinking, oh, 
yes, it's it might seem harsh, but you need lots of witnesses and you need um, and really it's for their own good because, you know, once they're, you know, they've been punished in this life, they won't be punished in the next life. So, you know, <laughs> for me, I believed any cock and oh. anything that essentially made me think oh this is okay because i i got to the point where i believed it completely right so so the, just to clarify basically the people say like yeah you might think stoning gay people is harsh but actually it's really it's actually an act of kindness to gay people because, yes, to help them because, which is funny because i'm bisexual oh, so I, right. I i i at the time you know was dealing with lots and lots of like confused feelings right so i was it, this is essentially a way to stop people from going there and making these. It is essentially a what's that word? It's, like, it's to, to caution them. It's it's a measure to preemptive. So first of all, they say it's not anti-gay because you could be gay as long as you don't act on it. In, act, in fact, that's a you get a reward. So if you're if you if you're gay or bi, and you want to be with the same sex and you don't act on it, not only that's not a bad thing, you actually get a reward for that because you resist the temptation. Yeah. So they say, see, that Islam is actually very pro-gay because you actually have more opportunity for rewards, and <laughs> if you do act on it stoning you is not is not an act of cruelty because after you got stoned and die you won't go to hell anymore because you got punished and the hell would have been a lot worse so stoning itself is also an act of kindness holy fuck that sounds yeah. pretty bad you know the thing is that with this uh you know you, you talked about how can people believe these things i i was at a point when i believed these things as well i mean i tried to rationalize them in any way i could but the moment you say that there is a God, like after you die, you're going to die. No matter what happens, all of this is going to end, which is a terrifying thought. And after it ends, uh, you're going to be basically um, just at the mercy of God. Whatever God wants from you, that'll be your eternity. Now, someone with that power comes up and says, this is what you have to do. You have to chop off hands, chop off heads, kill the infidels, stone gays, whatever. Um, and, you know, you look at that, you have to find a way to make it seem right. I mean, th there's no other option. Um, I mean, so many people do believe that, you know, you know that, that that these things are okay. And actually, I think I was probably the kind of Muslim that believed that Sharia law, when it's implemented correctly, is so perfect that all these little measures, like making sure there's four witnesses, was enough to keep things um, just because. Islam has a very um, kind of basic definition of what is justice, what is sexuality, what does it mean to be a woman, what does it mean to be moral. Mm. Um, these are quite basic um, understandings of it. So, and I, and I, as a teenager, didn't have the best critical thinking, you know. So, it, I was uh, when I went to because I had spent. Uh, five years in Islamic boarding schools here from 11 to like 15 or 16. And then I went to Pakistan and spent day in, day out, full of Islamic, um, uh, this, this really hardline Islamic um, interpretation of the Quran. And it just gets to a point where you just, it clicks. Because it, it, for me, I was indoctrinated, you know, completely. Uh, there's no way that the, the same child who used to not want to wear a headscarf is now voluntarily wearing a face veil 
and voluntarily covering her hands and voluntarily being quiet in public. You know, that doesn't just happen. And I was so young. So as much as I say, oh, I chose to do it, I think a lot of indoctrination went into that. Yeah, that's, uh, and I think that goes with just being religious in, in general and accepting. But um, so I, I want to get into eventually, you know, talk about Faith to Faithless because it's one of our favorite organizations and I love everything that you're doing. And also um, the book that you co-edited. But co before we get there, can I have more questions about the things that you uh, Yeah, yeah, uh, no, yeah. No, 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 but I want to, because we, we kind of dove into this right. and you've been talking about things like how you went to Islamic boarding school, you chose to wear the niqab and, you know, the indoctrination. So what's your, let's start at the beginning. What's your family background? You come from a Sunni background. How did you grow up? Were your parents also religious? Uh, did you uh, go in that direction? Um, okay. Um, so I, my, my parents are Pakistani. I grew up in London. I was born in London. Um, my mom is very religious. My dad is not that religious. Um, my family, when I was growing up, was more we were more culturally Pakistani than Muslim. Like we did Ramadan and we went to the mosque and so forth. Um, but when I was um, around 11, there was a new trend of um, these religious Islamic boarding schools that were popping up. And um, some of my cousins had gone to those and my mom thought they were fantastic because they took me out away from all the secular stuff like, you know, drugs that you find that 11 year olds are smoking, you know, in secular schools, the way that some Muslim parents think, you know, it took me away from, you know, non-religious influences. Um, so it was kind of, I think, a, a confused upbringing. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly one way or another so in some ways my mom is quite you know outgoing and she's quite liberal in other ways she's quite conservative and religious um and i was the first of my out of my siblings i come from a large family i was the first one to be sent to formal religious education um and i i highly resisted it because when i was a child i did not like religion at all i found religion super boring i didn't even really believe in it i didn't believe in god at that age around 10, 11 i didn't because mm -hmm. i remember saying i don't i i don't want to wear a headscarf i don't want to pray i don't want to do this but my mom you know my mom won basically because she's mom right <laughs> so before you know it i'm being shipped off to boarding school um so yeah that's my kind of background um, just, I would say, traditional Pakistani upbringing, you know, the lo a lot of emphasis on, you know, I got segregated from boys quite young. So I used to be what was known as a tomboy in those days, which meant that I liked boy things. So I liked football and skateboarding and getting, my, getting messy and wrestling. Yeah. You know? I wasn't a typical girl at the time. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why, you know, I didn't want to go to boarding school because being in a all girls religious environment was like the worst thing in the world for me. Yeah. Where was your dad in all this? So you said your father was not as religious. So my dad was basically trying to stop me from going to boarding school because one, he thought it was unnecessary an unnecessary cost. Secondly, he didn't really like, he's, you know, when I actually eventually left Islam as an adult, he blamed himself because what my father did was as he would drive me to school, because it was a five hour drive, um, he would tell me about his own views on religions and he would tell me to never accept what, anything the mullahs were saying without questioning it first. You know, whatever said to you, question it, which is what I did. Um, so where my father was, was essentially losing the battle to mom. 
mum won and I got sent to school. Well, eventually it seems like your dad won, like now. Well, yeah, he will, though he wouldn't accept that. Yeah. <laughs> but, and uh, did you have brothers and sisters or any siblings? Yeah, yeah, I've got, um, I've got four sisters and one brother. So Wait, big family. Is, is your dad are, upset? Are they upset that you left Islam? Uh, I, I mean, are they upset? I mean, I left Islam 10 years ago. Right. When I was 19. Um, so for the first five years of that, because they found out pretty much straight away. Um, for the first five years of that, it was just like, there was no real relationship with me and my parents, you know. Um, it was, I mean, what Muslim parents, from my experience, tend to do is, is sometimes it's a clear, clean, you know, disownment, but mostly it's an emotional abusive that kind of goes tucking backwards and forwards. Right, right, right. I was tucking that sort of emotional, um, so for the first five years of it, so when I first left, it was like, okay, this is a phase. And she just crazy. She just wants to have a boyfriend. She just wants to have sex. All of those things were true, but it's not the reason why I left Islam. And uh, they, you know, conflated it with it. Just oh no, she's just she just she's just um, rebelling. Right. You see, so I it was kind of minimized. Um, but I, I, it wasn't a phase. Like one year went, two year went, two years went, and then they they asked me to keep it a secret. So I kept it a secret from wider family. So if I went to weddings for the first few years, I wore a headscarf. Oh. Uh, I didn't tell anyone. I was really careful about what I posted on the internet. Um, and every time I went home, it was like this constant conversation about religion. Like, oh, like, for example, when I got my grades for my A-level exams, you know, I got really high grades. And my mom's response was, yeah, but, you know, you don't pray. So how can we celebrate? Oh. So for me, it was no matter what was happening, there was something about why I'm not a Muslim. So, you know, they were, you know it was constant. So you, you left Islam at a time when, uh, you know, you mentioned that you didn't know about the ex-Muslim movement. You didn't know there were people like you out there, which mm. is really, um, yeah, that's actually, it's very courageous. And then you're saying you've been like hey, you this. You had no support group. Right. No, I mean, I had, um, I had no support group. I mean, I, the, I, the only support I had in my life were two of my Muslim friends at college. So they were supportive to me. Um, and I remained friends with them for a very long time. But eventually, I think the activism thing became too much for them. Mm -hmm. um, but they but they were there for me at the time when I left Islam. Um, and then there was a, an online forum I used to use, a philosophy forum called Captain Cynic. Mm -hmm. And I used to write about what, you know, you know, my doubts when I was young, I used to write there. Then eventually when I left Islam, there was one guy who identified that I was really struggling. And then he supported me the way that I might support an ex-Muslim now. Like he spoke to me about what was going on for me and helped me and told me that I should try and get some help or I should speak to my friends. Um, and me and him are still friends. Um, so he, it, that was just the kindness of, of one, one Australian guy who, you know, was really there for me. But there was nothing like there was there wasn't a council of ex-Muslims of Britain. I don't think so. Or even if they were, I didn't come across them. Yeah, I think they started yeah. in 2007, but they so were. And I left. Yeah. So I left Islam in 2000 and uh, 2008, maybe or two thousand. Yeah, 2008. So, you know, I. I know a lot of um, ex-Muslims have this thing where they think that there's no one else like them. Mm -hmm. With me, I, I I felt that way as well. But I was, 
I never felt like, oh, I'm the only one, so I must be crazy. I mean, I saw non-Muslim people, like atheists that I respected and went, I'm not unnormal because of them. Mm, you know, yeah. like, I felt like, you know, they're, they're people and I'm people. But I, you know, wouldn't, I, I didn't know how to meet other, other ex-Muslims because I'd promised my family that I was going to keep it a secret from wider society. And I did for like five years. Right. Yeah, this is like, a, the, you remember Armin, you know, Yaz Muhammad, um, she said the same thing. I actually have the same experience. I think when I started even writing about this stuff, hmm. then it was it was about 10 years ago. And th there wasn't really as much of a movement. There, there wasn't a movement out there, an actual movement. So I no. just thought of myself as atheist. I never really thought of the whole ex-Muslim thing. Yeah, same. Um, at that point and and i think yas muhammad had the same story you guys were yeah. you guys were smarter than me i was i was still in, in iran when i became a, in an atheist and even though i was in iran i couldn't shut up about it so um, <laughs> yeah so that was that was actually yeah i, I think you it, it's really it's really dangerous if you go through your ex-muslim phase and you're uh if you if that happens um when you're a rebellious teenager and you're in an Islamic country, it might actually cost you more than more than you that mm. you knew that than you were prepared to invest. This is how a lot of um, ex-Muslims sometimes get arrested or killed in Islamic countries, and people here think like, "Why did they do that?" Well, I mean, they don't understand what kind of a prison they were living in before that, and they yeah. had to just you know. But but well, they're just being authentic, aren't they? Yeah, like they in themselves. But but right. with um, actually Muskel ask uh, um, we're gonna ask all the patron questions at the end, but this is so relevant, so I'm gonna ask Muskel's questions now. She's asking how, um, other than what you already mentioned, how has your life changed for the better being faithless? Yeah, my life has completely changed for the better. Like I get asked sometimes, what do you miss from being religious? And I'm like, basically nothing, <laughs> you know, nothing. Um, now I have a lot of control over what I, what I do. I mean, what I wear, the decisions I make, mm. um, I can read pretty much any, any sort of, you know, religious or philosophical idea without, and, and be able to engage with it without feeling like I'm doing something wrong. Mm. So for me, I feel that I live quite a fulfilling life, um, as a non-religious person, mm. I was, I remember once I was at this um, panel and, and this young woman said that when she left Islam, she felt there was a spiritual hole for her. And she said, oh, how did you feel that? And I said, well, I filled it with experiences and music and books and ideas and um, entertainment and, and, you know, travel. And <laughs> I went out there and did things. Whereas when I was a religious person, I was in a constant state of not allowing myself to experience things because they were they you know they were wrong so yeah does that answer <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a, actually one of the best answers i've heard that's yeah that's great and um, you, you so so no so um alia i just want to so you leave islam uh you eventually you have this sort of five-year uh estrangement from your parents um mm. you you're kind of alone there isn't really a movement out there and then at some point you do end up running into you know the wonderful Mariam Namazi, who we've mm. had here on the show as well, and the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, which I think really was a first organized high-profile um, yeah. support group specifically for ex-Muslims. So how yeah. did uh, that relationship begin? So I uh, I was in my final year of, of, 
of university. I was studying English and I had managed to keep completely away from religion. Even at university, I did not engage with the three Islamic societies that my university had. Um, but Mariam Namazi, I came across her on the internet. She was asking for people who had attended religious institutes. She was sort of looking for a journalist. Um, and, you know, she asked me to meet her. So my entry into this whole arena uh, didn't come about because of ex-Muslim activism. I was actually doing um, activism much more on education um, because I ended up writing an article about the Islamic school I went to in Britain, which was investigated and nearly shut down, but they managed to, you know, make some, some changes mm. uh, and are open. Um, and that's how I met Mariam Namazi, and that was the first time that I'd met an actual ex-Muslim. Um, and she was this, obviously, this, this, she's this intense, you know, oh, amazing, yeah. kind woman as well. So I didn't feel intimidated by her because she didn't make me feel intimidated. Um, and then she invited me to give a talk. Now, this is where, um, you know, what I had promised my parents of keeping things quiet sort of changed. Because Mariam asked me if I would do a conference and talk about my experiences of the Islamic boarding school, which I agreed to do. So I met Mariam, I did the conference, and my extended family found out that I was an atheist because eventually an uncle came across the YouTube video and then it spread like wildfire through my extended family. Like, how can Alia say she's, a, she, she's an ex-Muslim? She's been at Islamic boarding schools for like six years. She wears a headscarf, what's happened? And, you know, my parents were like bombarded with phone calls from people from Pakistan and all over the place saying, <laughs> what's happened to your crazy, your crazy daughter? Oh, you know, God. so me and Mariam Namazi led to that, really. Yeah, that's and so our, I know that Armin's going to want to know this, too. So I hope I'm asking for both of us. Uh, Tashfin Malik goes to this Aloda Institute, Islamic boarding schools, and she goes there and, and she kills a whole bunch of people in San Bernardino. You go through the same school, the same teacher, and you become an ex-Muslim doing a talk for Mariam well, Ramadan. Well, Ali, you have to explain who you're talking about. You're talking to people that don't know the names. No, Tashfin Malik, I just said she was a San Bernardino shooter. Right. Yeah, so, killed, uh, yeah, so she was part of ISIS and she killed, I think her and her husband killed about 15 people Yeah. Um, in America. So, um, so you went to the I, same school as she did? We went to the same school. So I think the main difference was, and this is what I wrote in my article, was that in my view, in order for a person to eventually go to violent extremism, I think you need to have like three factors in place, okay. probably more, but these are three basic factors in my opinion. The first one is a literalist um, interpretation, understanding of Islam. Mm -hmm. The second one is some kind of geopolitical context, like ISIS calling to arms. Mm -hmm. And the third one is something within you, some kind of vulnerability, whether that's uh, mental, uh, mental health um, illness or uh, you have a background of criminality or so forth. Um, whereas when I left, uh, when I had that in that literal i just think that what happened with me is that i i became super religious and i went back to britain and i didn't know much about the wider world in terms of islamic terrorism i didn't understand it i didn't understand politics because i'd gone to very very you know small bubbled islamic girl schools where the way that i was taught about islam was you know how to be a good mother and how to be a good wife uh, Armin, let, because I know that you specifically wanted to talk about faith to faithless, and that's yeah. Maybe that we... get to that. But if if we lose you completely, we yeah. want to make sure we get that in, though. Yeah.
Yeah, um, so Faith to Faithless is something that um, is obviously very close to my heart because I, I co-founded it with MTRs um, a few years ago in 2015. Um, and essentially it is a, um, an organization that's dedicated to raising awareness about apostasy um, overall. So we work with people that have left religions um, all different types of religious backgrounds, ex-Muslims, ex-Christian, ex-Jews, um, and so forth. So they hold events um, and also organize socials so people can um, meet, you know, similar to people to themselves. You know, and Faith to Faithless is now um, a part of a national charity. So they're in a good place to, um, you know, have conversations, um, you know, with members of parliament and so forth about apostasy and trying to make changes in that way. Um, one of the things that they do, which I'm, um, is uh, training. So we offer training to different various organizations in terms of, you know, apostasy and safeguarding. And um, like so recently, they delivered training to a section of the Metropolitan Police um, in making them understand, you know, you know, the fact that when people leave a religion, they can become vulnerable and they can face um, various levels of discrimination and personal hardship, which is a matter for the police. Um, and this was part of, um, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, because as you know, guys, know you've spoken to MTR, these very much about communities and building those yeah. kinds of community networks. Um, whereas I took a slightly different, um, you know, sort of strategy because, we, you know, it's all about different types of strategies. And for me, it was, you know, about resources. You know, you've got so many people out there who are suffering, but we don't have the resources to, to, to help these people as individuals. So then it was essentially about, well, who does have access and who does have resources? Are people like, you know, professionals like doctors or the NHS or police officers? So if we can train those organizations so that when apostates go to them, then they will understand how to actually work with apostates properly, as opposed to, you know, we've had instances where people have gone to, let's say their psychotherapist or their counselor, and their counselor has redirected them to Muslim organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, you know, being able wait, to wait, actually... Wait, they, they direct... Okay, that's worth emphasizing. The, these so-called professionals, they sent ex-Muslims to Mus Muslims, so that's the worst place they could send them to. Yeah, so they've, uh, I've, um, I've heard of uh, ex-Muslims who have spoken to like the council and the council like, oh, I know a good organization for you and told them to <laughs> go to Muslims. I mean, I've, I've had two bouts of therapy myself. Go on, what are you going to say on me? No, no, this, just to me, it just suggests that they just see them as the same group of people. Well, right? that's, like, oh, you're well, that's Muslim, Muslim, I'm just sending you to your people. Like, no, I'm not, I'm exactly the opposite of the people you're sending me to. What the heck? But sometimes, but you know, sometimes it's so, it's so basic. Like, you know, when you go, like when I, I went, I've been for like two sets of therapy now. Um, I've had CBT and I've had counseling. And when I went for my counseling the first time, I spent the first half of my first session explaining what an ex-Muslim is, explaining the dynamics. So I did like my face-to-face -face talk to my own counsellor so that she was in the right position to be able to actually then do her bit, which is, you know, using the right techniques I need to help me get out of my depression. Um, right. So that's where I think, you know, you know face-to-face -face has been successful in that it's you know it's launched a fully fledged training programs for professionals 
Um, and now we're in the process of actually getting that awareness out there. So that if you know if, if there's any organisations, whether you are a school or um, a council or a mental health professional or even social workers, and you want to have an understanding of apostasy, Faith to Faithers will do that. And um, we've, I mean, the first ever training that we gave was um, I developed it with a director of community services, and we gave it to RE teachers, and they, you know, said that they were genuinely surprised, and there was a lot of information that they hadn't thought of. You got cut out for a second. Uh, you met, uh, RE as in the religious education? As in re religious education. So the first conference, the first training we gave was to, you know, RE teachers, humanist RE teachers. Mm -hmm. and, and they found it very helpful and said that it helped them understand, you know, apostasy better. Because right now, um, you know, it's, you know, even though in the West, um, ex-Muslims or apostates in general are not treated where they are in, let's say, a Muslim country where they're penalized under the state law, a lot of the institutions that are supposed to protect and support vulnerable people don't even have a basic understanding of what apostasy is and what the dynamics are. And that is not going to help. Isn't you know, this a very sensitive issue in the UK right now? Like, there isn't, like it seems like every all the news... I don't know how biased the sources are that we're getting, but it's either um, there's all the news I'm seeing is either there's no problem at all, but or it's so bad that you can't even talk about Islam before somebody coming up. Like, I don't understand. Like right now, did you get any backlash from uh, anybody in the government or from any community because of you, because of you being ex-Muslim or have any views against Islam? Is it that bad? Um, um it, it, to be honest with you it really depends hmm. um it, it really depends like let's say for example a youtuber like marwa right or mimsy right. you know she gets um these horrible emails uh, you know that are quite violent yeah. um, and very aggressive um whereas me i i i mean i've got a youtube channel but i haven't made a video in absolutely ages i made one about shamima begum recently from my phone because i just had an opinion that I needed to give, mm. but I'm not making regular content. So I think if I was making regular content now that dealt with Islam um, and, uh, you know, theology, I'd probably end up getting much more hostility, like death threats or so forth. I mean, I've never had a death threat. Right. Um, and I, the way that I work, a lot of what I do, because with Faith to Faithless, it looks at people from a whole range of backgrounds. Mm. Some, sometimes I think Faith to Faithless gets missed as an ex-Muslim organization because we cover all the different religious groups. Yes, um, yeah. You know, I think that gives yeah. it a little bit of a safety net. Um, you know, and you guys are doing such a uh, you know kind thing. Like it's, it's so... It's so it's so positive that I don't think any uh, anybody wants to anybody that is against ex-Muslim movements wants to bring highlights you anyway because it just makes them look well, really bad. <laughs> like they probably well, go mean, after. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I mean we, I mean we do. I mean we get. We, we, I think generally what's happened to Faith to Faithless from religious organizations is that we've been mostly ignored. Like they don't really want to bring attention to us. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've never, I'm probably one of the early ex-Muslims. I've never had a death threat. Mm -hmm. um, I've just managed to, like, miss it. I get a lot of, you know, hope you burn in hell forever stuff. 
I never had anyone target me. Um, but that's just, I think, probably because I don't make that much content about theology. Mm. I focus much more on the social movement and looking at things like policy and looking at the social dynamics, not because I'm not interested in theology, but because Faith to Faithless, in the way that it as an organization looks at the issue of apostasy, is much more from that social kind of sociological side rather than from a theological side so we don't we don't go in there with you know the quran says apostasy is wrong and there's an issue in terms of the way that muslims interpret islam our panelists might say that when our panelists have because we do panelists across universities they can say pretty much what they want as long as it's not discriminatory as an organization the way that we discuss the issue is much more from that social perspective because people who our, our service users might come from a Jehovah's Witness background or they might come from a Jewish background. Mm. And what we look at is the similarities between people um, in terms of the experiences that they face. So, for instance, some people, so I, I, as a cons- as I, I, I've known ex-Muslims who have you know, come from conservative Muslim backgrounds, will identify more with somebody who comes from a conservative Jewish background. Huh. Maybe someone comes from a liberal, a liberal Muslim background. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, interesting. That's that's actually this true. is a very good service that we need other places. Like uh, we don't have what you, that here, and like something with the work that you're doing. Like maybe what you are you feeling? Are you, are you thinking about expanding to outside of the UK? I, well, I mean, I I think right now it's just about um, first trying to get it into a good place in terms of you know expanding it across the UK first because right now it can be quite London centric. Right. Um, so, I mean, I took a sabbatical from Faith to Faithless to do my master's. I actually did my master's in English and I wrote about um, apostasy from Islam. So I looked at Rushdie and Anif Qureshi. Oh right. yeah. um, but now I'm, gonna, I'm going back to Faith to Faithless more actively. So I'm taking over a chair from MTRs. Right. Um, so it's essentially, you know, we're going to look at, you know, I want to expand like the socials that we do. And expand the training until it's you know really active. I want to get as many organisations trained up as possible because, I mean, a few years ago I remember I was talking to an ex-Muslim from a Muslim country, and he said to me that it doesn't really matter what you guys do in the UK. It's what happens in Iran and Pakistan. And um, I said to him that that's that's fair, but what we what 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 we have. No, no, in the sense of I do understand what he meant and I emphasize with what he said. Mm. But what I, what I said was that we are in a place where we have the privilege to be able to have this conversation. And perhaps if we can, you know, get the academic, you know, get the academic world to take it seriously, get studies produced, have the law changed in, in Western countries. If it, if it is recognized as a real prejudice and discrimination, then we can do a lot of the kind of groundwork right. so that. You know, it's easier in places like Morocco and right. South. No, I, I, I completely disagree with the people that are criticizing you for that because um, mm. what, everybody has to focus on something and what you're doing is a major gap that doesn't exist. So thank you for doing all the, all the work that you're doing. And in fact, what you're doing is creating um, an environment where more ex- we have more future ex-Muslim activists coming out and maybe create... Yeah. Like, even if you're not creating ex-Muslim content, you're helping ex-Muslims be able to find them, you know 
find the communities that they that they might um, feel that they're comfortable in belonging into. And then these are the future activists. Even if one yeah. percent of them are the future activists, these are the people that will become the voice of the people in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, yeah. in Bangladesh. That's what I hope. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's what I kind of hope. Like for me, it's about creating the spaces. Like. Right. know creating the environment so it's safe like one of you know the visions i have is like the department for education which you know looks at schools and so forth they already acknowledge that children that are gay um can be vulnerable and can experience discrimination now what if they recognized apostates that in itself would be a huge thing in the way that schools deal with apostasy when young people experience stuff at home then teachers are educated they know what's going on right now we're not there i think this is something that day-to-day is you know whether it expands or not is is a resource issue the ambition is always there but i think other organizations if they're interested in whether it's training or if it's something that we are doing that they are you know interested in i think that I would be happy to collaborate with other organizations that might want to be involved in that mm. or you know because I think it's about sharing knowledge and sharing resources because essentially we all want the same outcome which is a safer world in which people can you know live their lives. Uh, Alia our, our patron uh, Jan Skelton uh, has a question. Uh, she's saying I am interested in the toll that activism sometimes takes on activists in terms of their mental health. What can we do as an atheist community to support our activists. So you said that you had been through a couple of bouts of the CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, mm. uh, so, so what is the, um, um, what would you say to that? I mean, ex- I mean, I, I myself have, um, because when I first set Fate Papers up um, within TRS, we essentially did it 24 hours a clock. Like we were both directors of it equally. And we worked on it 24 hours, like, and I had a full-time job as well. Um, so it, it became, it, it is exhausting and I, it did affect my mental health um, because for me, it was like, go, go, go. And it was when I wasn't working on Fate to Faithless or organizing an event, I was answering an email or answering messages. I get a lot of messages. Um, and I would say that, you know, you, you can't really support activists because, you know, we are responsible for our own own mental health like we need to also you know pace ourselves and bring a balance and and, and know when we're maybe we're stretching ourselves and also to access mental health uh, facilities when we need to um, but I think that when more people will move will come out when more people will be involved in activism then we will share the responsibility and the burden that in itself will help so you know I always say to new ex-Muslims because sometimes they're very much like they want to they want to do something they want to get out there and I advise them to not leap into it, to, you know, take their time hmm. with themselves and do it when they're ready and not to let anyone pressure them into doing it when they're not ready. Hmm. Um, but the more that we get more activists involved, more people talking about it, I think that will reduce the burden on the few activists that there are. Yeah, you guys, I wish you, you were around when we were discovering these things. Um, one thing um, one thing I want to ask is, like, did you get, do you get any backlash from the PC culture? Uh, regarding um i do you know what i think i tread quite a soft line in the way that i talk so i've not really had much aggro Mm. on that i mean i have had i did have like one or two instances like when i tried to uh, reach out to a feminist organized a feminist you know um group about organizing an ex-muslim event they weren't very keen because of their their muslims 
they're Muslim um, members. Um, but by and large, I mean, at the, but then at the same time, you know, I was, you know, I was recognized by a feminist organization nice. by Dr. Pauline Long for my, for my ex-Muslim activism. Right. Um, so I would say that it really depends. And um, I think generally I've been able to, I mean, I've, I've had this conversation uh, at a parliamentary level and, you know, online social media. Sometimes I get a backlash from people that, you know, are questioning why I'm talking about things, but I would, I, I, I would say that, it, you know, it really depends on my tone. And I think the, the, the more um, balanced I am, the less I will get sort of attacked. The more one-sided I am, the more likely I am to be attacked. But I really think that your, uh, your organization is a very good way to introduce um, the ex-Muslim community to a lot of people that are maybe a little bit uh, far away from us to the left. Because I think we, Ali and I, see ourselves as part of the left, but some people that are very, you know, been in... Uh, been taken over by the PC culture because this is supposed to be protecting minority groups uh, when the left does being does its job right um, this is what they're supposed mm. to be good at like taking care of creating organizations and institutions yeah. where minorities feel like they find communities and their voices are heard this is this is yeah. this is um, this is something that we um, you know and we criticize the left a lot, but this is something that we could be proud of the left for, or historically at least. And I think introducing the ex-Muslims as uh, as a, 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 one of the minorities that also needs these kind of institutions and organizations and communities of support to these people that might have dismissed us before as just anti-Muslim bigots, if yeah. this, this way of looking at them might be a good way of getting our foot in the door. So I think... This is amazing. I think, yeah. I think um, with, I, I think especially if you go back, like, I mean, when I first came into this whole area of uh, secularism was only 2014, right? Before 2014, I wasn't involved. I had no idea about ex-Muslims or the secular world at all. Um, but there was, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, you know, dynamics happening. I mean, the left, let's say Western countries are predominantly white. And for them to be, you know, they have their own, the, the kind of primary focus of leftist politics, which is class struggle and, and so forth, right? Within that, then you have minority, you know, discrimination. And then inside of that, you have Muslims and what they experience. And then within that is the ethnic sort of background and, and what they're experiencing. And then within that, you have ex-Muslims. Mm. So the dynamics are so kind of, um, a minor, as Majid Namaz would say, a, you know, a minority within a minority that, you know, essentially, you know, leftists are just about trying to support Muslims in this murky kind of, you know, world mm. of understanding Islam. But then now trying to, you've got Muslims, they, they're, they're now the, the group that are being seen as oppressive. Right. I think that's a lot of, it's been difficult for, for leftist activists to be able to know, you know, where to stand on the issue. And I think that's why Faith to Faithless was set up because we were like, we're not going to sit around and wait for, you know, people to invite us. We are going to invite people. Mm. And we started, right. you know, going to universities and saying, we just need a room for an hour. We'll bring our own camera. We'll bring our own people. And we just started contacting ex-Muslims and ex-Jews and ex-Christians saying, you know, you might not be a big activist. You might not, you know, but will you come and share your story? And that was so powerful right. that, you know, we had, a you know, we, we, we had a lot of people, we had 
you know, our first ever ex um, religious panel that was from people from more different religious backgrounds was so packed that people were trying to sit on the stairs and we were like overwhelmed by it because, you know, we were just two people that literally just opened a Facebook page and just went, all right, everyone, let's go. Um, so I think, you know, as much as we can say, you know, you know, the left aren't doing this, or the left aren't doing that, you know, I think that, you know, they should be doing more, but I think as you become more the change yourself you become the change yourself right yeah and right. um do yourself right so um hazem uh one of our patrons uh he's asking and i i guess this is relevant i wanted to add something to it too he's saying do you think do you guys think if someone wrote the satanic verses or something like it today would it be met with the same vitriol and outrage and i i guess what what i wanted to add to this was that um you know, with all of the work that you're doing and going out and bringing out this other perspective of apostates from Islam, uh, the work that Faith to Faithless is doing, has that made a change that you have, are there any things that you can see in the society in which you live, in British society, where there's more awareness of this, where, or would, do you think that um, the, the Salman Rushdie thing, the whole, if that incident happened today, it would have the exact same reaction? Um... I don't think that, I, I think if it had happened like five years ago, six years ago, I think it would have been a massive, it would have been just as bad. Um, I think now there's a little bit more apathy. Mm -hmm. I think there's, there, there was a time when everyone was like super passionate about the Islam debate. And I think that there's a little bit of apathy that's kind of taken over people, mm -hmm. um, where they just are not as interested anymore. Um, so I think, yes, it probably would have a very negative impact. And I think that what's crucial about the Salman Rushdie, because I actually wrote about the novel for my master's, um, what's crucial about it is that it's, it's, it's about context. You know, he was a British uh, Indian man who was writing about Islam in this way where it was very obvious that he was learned about Islam. He understood Islam. Um, and he was questioning it in this highly intelligent way that I think made, I, th I think it would have actually intimidated Muslims at the time because the actual prose is so complicated it is. Um, and it's so blasphemous as well. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that the, the blasphemous sequences are so crucial, not to just a criticism of Islam, but an exploration of that whole process of what it means to be an ex-Muslim. You know, there's there 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 are multiple ex-Muslim characters, and this is what I argued was that the Rushdie novel, the, the Rushdie affair, was a, a Watergate moment, Watershed moment, for the ex-Muslim movement because it's the first novel that it's not that it's that it just criticizes Islam, but it lays out the different traumas associated to questioning and leaving Islam in a way that no other novel has done. I mean. Hanif Qureshi's A Black Album does talk about, you know, an, a, a person leaving Islam as well, and it explores those dynamics, but it's nowhere near as passionate and as detailed and in-depth as, as the Rushdie novel. So, you know, I don't think, I, I think what happened with Rushdie was very much tied in with, you know, British-Iranian relations with the kind of cultural context of the time. But I don't think that, you know, if the novel was published now, it would go unnoticed. I think it would still have such an impact because apostates um, are, are, are not, they are not legitimized. They are not given the autonomy or the respect to be able to make 
um, to have conversations about Islam in this way, and definitely not in print like that. One thing you mentioned about the uh, Islam being the oppressed or being the oppressor, this is actually very interesting to me because uh, when we, when uh, when we come from countries like Iran and we start coming and living in Canada, to in our mind, when Islam is the oppressor, like we look at Islam, the image of Islam to us as ex-Muslims is the oppressor. And for for people here, when they look at the Muslim community, they see the op an oppressed group of, group of people. But I, uh, but to me, uh, is is I wonder if that really, uh, if at least some of these people are now going to see the other side of this uh, as Islam grows, as Islam is growing in 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 Europe, um, and they see you know the oppre the oppressor side of the net. Well, I mean, I'm not talking about the Muslim community, but the Islam itself, uh, by its nature, is the oppressor. Um, and as as they as they give as they give more, uh, you know, as as they give make make more excuses for Islam to grow in influence in different places, I do think that a lot of these people that have a lot of views that it goes against Islam now all of a sudden might be seeing that maybe we we shouldn't have done this as far as we have, especially when it comes to these. Schools just recently we see oh, in the UK where we see, uh, for example, that uh, they're teaching gay about it's okay to be gay. Uh, I was wondering who's going to come out winning um, between the between the gay rights activists and the Muslims. Um, who's going to win that battle? And I and I wasn't surprised to actually see that the the Muslims were the ones that won and and they took all those classes out of the schools. What do what do you think? Yeah. Now, actually, what ended up happening with Parkside, the school, is that they... Oh, we lost her. Oh, we're going to get her back in a few minutes. Uh, yeah. But Ali, uh, what, so what I was trying to get at is that I'm thinking a lot of the people that used to be against us in this position are starting to change their views. Uh, and this is something that we predicted... I predicted and a lot of other people predicted that this is going to be the old uh, at some point the people that are defending this community are eventually going to clash with it because Islam by its very core is a right-wing ideology exactly and and the people that are protecting it and grow and letting it grow and like what she, what 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 Aliyah is doing is actually helping people but what these people were doing in, is in the name of helping people, they were actually giving uh, Islam more influence, right? Giving, protecting the ideology yeah. rather than the people. So I do think that the amount of the, its influence is sometimes exaggerated, but it still shouldn't be ignored. Like it is a yeah. growing influence in Europe. Um, it, yeah, it is. Uh, but I. I think that uh, one thing that would be effective, especially the way that we speak to the left, mm -hmm. and I, I think I tweeted this out recently, um, is that that people should, Western liberals should realize that when we talk about right-wing extremism, when we're saying, you know, right now there's a lot of concern about right-wing extremism, mm -hmm. um, that includes Islamic fundamentalism, right? right? We, we got they, they have, yeah, we've got Aliyah back, so Aliyah, we'll, we'll get to that yeah. later. Um, Sorry, I think Armin was asking about, you know, the impact of Islam and those kinds of narratives and what happened with Parkside yes, with right. Birmingham. Um, I think it's actually not that it's positive <laughs> what's happened, but 
what happened with Parkside, um, the fact that, you know, it happened and there was such an outcry from the public and from journalists, um, and as well as from Muslim Muslims who are gay, you know, Muslim who are gay actually had quite a loud voice on this issue. Mm. Um, and in the end, actually, the government passed a vote where they said that they were going to make sure that these classes um, or that RE, you know, the, the, not RE, the sex education is going to be, um, you know, much more inclusive. Um, you know, it, at Parliament, uh, you know, at that level, they said that they, they, they're they going to keep making sure that these schools do that. And it's not, you know, unlikely, it's not surprising that Muslim parents, you know, that there's going to be a group of Muslim parents that are homophobic. Right. Um, but I think the fact that there are so many people that can be more vocal, that we're seeing gay Muslims coming out and saying that, no, we don't agree with this, we're part of the community and we disagree with homophobic parents, I think it's very powerful. Ex-Muslims are very vocal in that as well. And I think wider society, liberal society, were not impressed with it. Yeah, there was a backlash, right, to these Muslims, but the wider community is not impressed with it. But they still won. I mean, to me, yeah. that sh I, I, to me, that shows that they are so powerful because they wouldn't have these people that are moving for gay rights, they wouldn't have moved an inch for anyone else, Ali. Yeah. No other group could come out and say, no, you're not going to be teaching gay rights about uh, it's okay to be gay in schools. And these people are like, okay, fine, we'll back off. The only group of people that could say that, and these leftists back off and said, okay, fine, we won't teach this in schools, was the Muslim community. To me, that does suggest that even though I agree that it's exaggerated by some people, but to me, that's very alarming. To me, that suggests that there is some level of influence that these people enjoy that other communities don't enjoy. Yeah, I, but but it's also being pointed out more. Yeah, right? but, I mean, but 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 like that's but but I mean no, no, that's I'm, what Aliyah was saying too. It's being pointed out more, but still they won. Right, no, they, yeah, but you're they're one in the short term. Oh, they didn't win overall. Yes, it was, it was it was just a short period where they said they were going to change the time slot of the school. It was misinformation that was spread out. The school came out and said, "No, we're not going to discontinue the lessons." Right. It's just misinformation that came out. So the lessons are continuing. Mm -hmm. So as much as and the reason why it's a okay, good thing good. is because the lessons are continuing. The reason why it's a good thing is because we need people to see this. Yeah, they didn't win, and so you know this is, and and there's a lot more at this, but um, I I think that's that's a key thing. I think people are realizing that is it is becoming tough. I, I and I'm seeing this. I'm I'm seeing this with liberals that I talk to who in the in the past were very I guess what you call regressive, mm. and now they're coming up and they're seeing stuff like this Parkland thing. Uh, they're seeing. Uh, people come out, they're like, okay, we're supporting all of the Muslims, and then Muslims, like, the Women's March thing. Look what Mars, happened to the women's babe, Ali, are you sure about this information? Mars is also saying in the live channel, saying, I don't understand, I thought the schools had caved. Yeah, no, they caved uh, initially. Hmm. Uh, and it, well, no, they had said initially that it was a temporary thing that they were going to do. And then later on, it became, uh, they decided to make it a permanent thing. Then eventually they said, no, we're Aliyah, not. Aliyah, they, um, some, some people, Mars in our live chat is saying he thought the schools had caved. Did they, did they not cave? No, my understanding is that the school didn't cave in the end. Uh, the, the school released a statement saying that they're going to continue um, 
teaching it. But wouldn't wasn't yeah. the teacher weren't the um, parents saying like we're gonna pull everything, we're gonna leave the school if they Yeah, I know yeah, yeah, I know they did. I know that they made they made loads of uh, right. I, I just think that I I think we're getting to a point where uh, people are beginning to realize this. Like these uh, uh, people who were formerly regressive, like, like I said, you know, they're coming back uh, to this stuff and they're saying, okay, we're going to fully support these guys. This is a minority community. They're being oppressed by the far right populist movement. And then, uh, and, I mean, now, this, and now, this... I, 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 yeah, all I'm saying is that I've heard a lot of uh, sort of liberal people start saying yes and when you talk to them and you say look hey if pat robertson said this or jerry Falwell said this or trump said this then you guys would be on him all over the, you know all the time when doug ford in ontario our our premier right, right. when he said that he wants to cut out uh, i agree like, i agree with you eddie but i do you also agree that whatever even if they caved in a little bit and then they got it back right right yeah. even if they did that they would that that level these are people that uh would not give an inch to anybody else they Hi, yeah yeah did we get you back yeah i i gotta I'd ask you uh, okay go ahead finish yeah. thing about parkland no I, I mean i might be wrong but i'm pretty sure the school put out a message saying that um there was misinformation and that they i think they'd postponed it for a short period that they were going to continue the classes okay so you know with these yeah i, I remember reading that so i'd i take it with a bit of pinch of salt to be honest so okay, what what do you up. think about i mean this is something that armin brought up earlier and he said he was going to ask you so I'll, I'll just ask you here is that what do you think of this whole idea of uh this warning that combined with immigration levels and the regression of the leftists um islam is a you know, sort of like a rising threat and it'll eventually take over and with birth rates and all of that. Um, a lot of these countries like France, they Ask usually give fast, we're gonna lose Yes. No, I think that this is um, this whole thing about Islam rising threat and Muslim immigrants and everything becoming too much and it's going to take over. It's just scaremongering nonsense. And I think the Muslim community is, is actually moving more towards uh, skepticism and questioning from my experience right. um, than I think we give them credit for. So I think that ex-Muslims have had a huge impact on Muslim communities in the West in the sense of, you know, they're bringing the conversations about Islam and some of its more questionable areas to the forefront of debate. And I think that, you know, yes, Muslim communities might grow in terms of from an ethnic standpoint, in terms of Muslim communities that are, uh, you know, Pakistani or whatever. But I think religiosity-wise, I don't think that it's it's getting worse. I think that where it got worse after 9-11, um, I don't think that there is a geopolitical context for that to continue being the, the, you know, the, the way it's supposed to be. I think things are going to go the other way now. I think people are going to move much more towards their own personal interpretation of Islam and on different various aspects of it that they can take on board, which are not just you know, the hard line. Uh, one thing I want to mention is that from, a, from an ex-Muslim activist perspective, we have more access to Muslims when they are he when they are in Europe and Canada and United States than when they're over there, right? So if you are fighting Islam, you probably would prefer for them to be in a place where you have access to them rather than a place where you don't have access to them. Do you mean you know what I mean? Like if you, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you just if I understand a lot of people are like what the hell I mean you so you want to bring in <laughs> you want to bring in more Muslims here just so that you could talk to Muslims. I mean if you're looking at it for from a purely activist point of way, ex-Muslim activist kind of way, I guess like 
fighting Islam is easier if they are if they are if they're over if they're in countries where you have the f- free speech and where they have access to your dialogue content. can happen, right? Yeah, the, the dialogue can happen. No, I, I was just essentially saying that. I mean, I remember I was on a panel discussion with like two Muslims. One was an imam. And I was the most optimistic person there about Muslim communities, um, and <laughs> which they just found so amusing. I was like, no, I just feel like Muslim communities, they have the ability to learn like any other conservative community. And as information becomes more available and they're more, you know, they come across different narratives, they're naturally going to um, become progressive in that way. And, and this, this imam and this other Muslim guys looked at me like I was crazy. You know, I was the ex-Muslim there and I was just so optimistic about Muslim <laughs> Like they can change. They can. I they am, can get on board with gays. You know, you're the, just, probably oh. the first person I've met who's like me in that sense. I get dinged for that a lot. They're like, "Oh, you're totally naive about it." But on the other yeah, hand, Armin is also very optimistic about all of these extremists, like the far right people, the uh, Islamic fundamentalists. He said they change. Yeah. They change, and we have I like agree. our email inboxes have like after I wrote my book, all of the some of the messages I got. I mean, people have changed. I can't even tell you how yeah, many. Yeah, I've right? had that as well. Yeah, so we, I mean, we've even, all from that background, like a lot. Even of like us. my family, like my family, like when I first been public was super, and you know they've kind of come on board now. And you know, even when I, the way I talk about Islam now is so different at home. I just think Muslims are like human beings. They can they can easily become desensitized if you can. You know, if if, if enough information is you know you know, passed down, you know, well enough, people, you know, can adapt. I think Muslim communities are going to have to adapt for the sake of themselves. One thing that people need to remember is the Enlightenment movement itself happened within a very short period of time, which rapidly changed the views of a lot of people, right? Uh, the whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. The I of, mean, it took, about, it took a little over a century, though. Yeah, but that's a very short, like, you, we're talking about, we're talking about views that were, uh, changing views within within a, over a century changing views that were that were ingrained in our minds for thousands of years right you know what i mean like the idea of human rights freedom liberty free speech uh due process all of that was not you know uh, holding governments accountable um all of that stuff wasn't um very popular for thousands of years so when you say over a century you have to put it in the context of the full uh, no I, I i agree with you and that, that's why i keep saying here we, we talked about Salman Rusty mm-hmm. and i keep saying that you know one of the reasons is uh, like if you look at this podcast you look at both of our books you look at all the conferences we're doing mm-hmm. everything compared to, i mean 30 years ago was the Salman Rusty incident that's a blip that's nothing for this right. kind of massive change okay, okay so let's People do uh, just let us know about yeah. that Faith to Faithless, the book, if you can just talk about where yeah. people can find you and how people can follow uh, your work. Yeah. So if you're interested in Faith to Faithless, you can find us on social media. We've got a website and we're also part of Humanist UK and we do loads of events. Um, so if you're interested, just follow us on Facebook and you'll see what events we do. Um, in terms of the book, um, yes, yeah, so I, I edited, co-edited um, this one here. If you, if you see it, it's on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Leaving Faith Behind is quite mouthy. Leaving Faith Behind, the journeys and perspectives of people who have chosen to leave Islam. Yeah. <laughs> it's a series of testimonies. It's got Hassan Radwan in it, who's been a 
a member of your uh, on your podcast, as well as Jimmy Matt Bagnesh and Fiaz Mughal, who set up Tell Mama and Faith Matters, and he's actually a Muslim. Yeah. Uh, me and him co-edited and collaborated on the book together. So if you are interested in understanding ex-Muslim dynamics, we've put together a set of really nuanced kind of voices on uh, leaving Islam. Uh, Alia, just tell us where to find you on social media, and then uh, we're going to let you go. So basically, if you do want to find me on social media, that's Alia underscore Salim. You can find me on Facebook as well. Um, but yeah, I'm not too difficult to find on the internet. So if you want to get in contact, you can do. Okay, listen, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank we definitely you. want to have you back uh, at some point uh, later. So can we can I have... Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry about my internet connection. I feel personally responsible no, no. for how it's today. It's not. It's not your fault. Armin's going to blame uh, Islamic immigration. Yeah, Islam is taking over your country. That's why you have Islamic country internet. No, it's not. It's really. It's really. <laughs> it's really kidding. not that bad. I know. Kidding, he's joking. Kidding, kidding. Oh, right. It's been so so nice talking to you guys, and I hope I can speak to you again. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Thank you, Alian. Thank, Thank you for you. taking the time. We really appreciate no it. No worries. No worries. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.